Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast with Chris Buda and Brett Hammond. Chris is a lawyer, pastor, and nonprofit executive, and Brett is a producer and business owner. This is the first episode of our new series where we have a fun and interesting discussion with Chris's brother, Colonel Mario Buda, who is a U-2 pilot. And in this episode, we discuss how leaders are being built constantly if they lean into it. We've got the honor uh, for the next podcast series here to talk to uh, Colonel Mario Buda, retired colonel from the U.S. Air Force. Mario is my oldest brother, uh, and he was a U-2 pilot, Air Force Academy grad. And some of you have seen, if you follow me on social media, the YouTube video from the TV special in 1999, I think it was, where he went up with Joan London, took her up in the U-2. And Mario has learned a lot of leadership throughout his career in the military, and it's how he achieved being a full bird colonel, uh, as well as being the guy to take Joan London up on this ABC TV special. But before we get to interviewing Mario and talking, I thought it'd be fun just to think through, you know, what it is to build a leader. You know, Brett, if you've read stuff, heard stuff, are leaders born or made? Kind of a combination of both. Yeah. But I really believe that there's an onus on the fact that leaders are, in fact, made. That there are a whole lot of leaders out there who don't start off as leaders, who become leaders because they are trained to become one. Yeah, and I would agree with you. And and if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully for some laughs and some kicks and giggles, but also for the leadership aspects we talk about, you got to know from listening to us that we believe that leadership can be built. Uh, it can you can grow in it just like any other art form or, or skill you can grow in it I do think there's something about leadership being innate in some uh, but it's just like an athlete you know, so many great athletes are genetically gifted and do their thing because of that but there's also a lot of great athletes who achieve much who just do it by sheer power of will who work at it and I would say the same is true of leadership and the, the funny thing is that as we get to the rest of the series talk to Mario hear his stories about what he learned flying spy planes and all that and uh, doing this TV special is just the fact that I, I would say is my older he's six years older than me I got a brother Mario six years older than me Mike is four years older than me he's a New York State corrections officer uh, fully recovered from from COVID so there's a success story someone who had the virus and got better my little brother Tony who's a couple years younger than me uh, Mario was always kind of the leader of the pack as the oldest but there was some inbred stuff that just always showed that he was a leader. But even as a young kid, I think back about how he achieved so much in life. And I think back as my big brother and going, he, the stuff he went through and the stuff he helped me through as a kid, as a child, as a teenager, as a young man, really showed that he had that both and the, the natural leadership and leadership that was built. I've shared this story before that my mom, my memory of my mom is her just being sick. I can't remember. We should probably should ask one of my older brothers, Mary or Mike. She got diagnosed with cancer maybe when I was five or six, and she lived about five or six years dying from it. You can say she lived, but back then in the 60s and the early 70s, it was just you know one one surgery after another, one surgery after another, radiation treatments burning her body, and just it just being a horrible, horrible situation. Anyone dealing with cancer now, God bless you. I know how brutal it is, but think about the advancements in med- medicine since then. I mean, they really did brutalize people trying to cut them apart, saving them from cancer back in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, my dad, New York City cop, did the best he could to take care of my mom and also take care of the family. But Mario is a young guy, again, six years older than me. So he was 10 or 11 or 12, maybe, my mom got sick until he was in high school. He did a lot of the heavy lifting. And you know what that's like if your family's in a rough situation where you've got to count on the kids to help. And Mario was a natural one. And it was just fun to watch 
to think back now uh, the struggles we went through, but it's fun to see how he was creating um, himself and building himself to a leader then. Two quick stories. The one I remember, I, I don't remember, but supposedly it was uh, urban. Le- I don't think it's urban legend. My dad's passed away, so I can't ask him. But there was a fire next door. We lived in Jackson Heights in Queens, and they were all row homes. So two houses attached in a driveway, then two houses attached. And I think it was the house that we were attached to caught fire. I don't remember because I was a baby. Literally, I was months old, and everyone smelled the smoke. My dad's clearing the house, getting everyone out of the house. And so there was only three kids at that point since my younger brother wasn't born yet. I was still, uh, I think, six months old, year old. And I guess they ran outside, and my mom and my dad's there. And Michael, my second older brother's there. My mom says to my dad, where's the baby? (laughs) Thanks, dad, for remembering the one who can't fend for himself. And the story goes that Mario comes out carrying me. Like he intuitively knew to get, you know, my mom and dad got out of the house. We were looking for us. But my my oldest brother, as again, if he's six years older than me, I was less than years old. He was six or seven years old, did that naturally. So I don't think he had learned anything other than I'm sure even then my mom and dad said, hey, take care of your brother, right? If we've got, you're the youngest, so you never had this, but if you had a younger brother, look after your brother. So they learned, he learned that early and took it seriously and actually did it. And then the second story is just, again, him processing with me when my mom died when I was in fifth grade. Uh, and he was a junior in high school, getting ready to go to college and just the, the, the load he carried as a young man was is amazing to me. And I probably haven't said enough how much I appreciated him and how much I appreciate him this day carrying a lot of that load. But as we get Mario on the horn here and get to talk to him about his beginnings as a leader uh, in the Air Force and all his professional career, I would tell you this, his leadership training happened long before he got to the Air Force Academy. And for those of you listening to this, that's the reiteration as you hear Mario's story. He's special but he's not unique. That makes sense when I say it that way, Brett? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he is a special guy, but he's not unique. 99.9% of us have the ability to grow our skills as leaders, to become stronger in that area, to exert leadership more. And I hope with this series, particularly with Mario, the next four or five podcasts we have, would reflect that and encourage you that you can grow in your leadership ability to do great things. So you graduated from the Academy in 1979, and you went straight to flight school, Mario? Yeah, I went, uh, yeah, left Colorado Springs and went down to Enid, Oklahoma at Vance Air Force Base. And then what did you fly right after flight school? Was that the KC-135s? Yes. So I went through uh, uh, pilot training, graduated in August of 80. And then I had uh, like a three-month hold at Vance and then started KC-135 training in December of 80. Uh flew tankers until may of 83 now before you go on to the next plane for people who aren't aviators or into the military the tanker the kc-135 uh tell folks what that does because again as a young guy my, it's my older brother so i always thought it was cool he did all this cool crap yeah uh oh but as a young guy he they, they talk about aerial intercourse i went this intrigues me <laughs> to, to it, describe it was, it's, it's the uh well, for the longest time, it was the the aerial refueling tanker for the Air Force. Now, uh, back in the 80s, they got KC-10s. They re-engined the KC-135s into R models. They uh, And now they just started buying uh, KC-46s. That's uh, another Boeing product. So without the tankers, 
the Air Force would be limited to flying about, you know, fighter aircraft, maybe five, six hundred miles, maybe a thousand miles. But the receiver aircraft, they're the ones that come in and it's it's like flying the Thunderbirds, except you're coming in behind the aircraft and below it. And then you will slowly come up and get into a position and it depends on the system. But uh, the F-15s we refueled, they used a boom from the tanker and there was an operator, boom operator on the tanker that would fly the boom into the receptacle on the fighter aircraft uh, or the B-52, the F-15, you know, the receiver aircraft. Some fighter aircraft, especially uh, Navy and Marine Corps airplanes, they use a probe and drogue system. They drop a basket on the end of a hose and the pilots on that one actually fly it right in there and and connect to that themselves. They don't have a guy on the the tanker uh, operating that other than to reel it in, reel it out kind of thing. All this at altitude and going how fast? Uh, it depends on the airplane. Like B-52s, I think we're doing 280. Fighter pilots probably, or fighter aircraft probably about, you know, 280 to 300. C-130s, we have to slow down. This <laughs> is got a bunch of Marines on there <laughs> weighing it down. And how close do the aircraft actually get in order to do that? All right, so this is going way back. If I remember correctly, probably 30 feet. <laughs> well, when, when JT's flying F-15s and T-38s when he's going through training, when they're flying formation in those airplanes, you get three-foot wingtip clearance. He just started flying formation in the T-6. He's not to the T-38 yet. Yeah. And uh, I think he started last week and he said, they're getting within 10 feet. I said, how are you doing? He goes, I'm terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes, I, I better get better at this. He goes, I'm terrible. <laughs> oh, it, it takes some practice. And I said, how fast are you going? He's like 200 miles an hour. I'm like, and you're getting within 10 feet of each other, these neophyte pilots? I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to know what you're doing. <laughs> It's a hoot. What did you do? So after the KC-135, did you fly those up in Maine before you were teaching in Maine? Yeah, when you came up there, I was flying the, the KC-135s. That was 1981. That's a long time ago, brother. Yeah, I was up there a little over two years flying the tankers. And then there was a drawdown after Vietnam, and we had a bow wave of pilots. So there were a lot of tanker co-pilots. So they selected, I think they said they were going to pick four guys from Warring to go be instructor pilots. And I actually enjoyed flying in training command. And so I, I volunteered to do that. So I went back to Vance as a T-37 instructor, which is the basic jet instructor, the first level. Now they've got a dual track system. So everybody flies the T-6 as the basic, the primary flight training. And then if you're going to go into fighters or bombers, you'd go to T-38s, the, the fast jets. And if you're going to go into air mobility, transport aircraft you fly t1 the jayhawks mm -hmm. and that's like that looks like a learjet <laughs> but when i did it i went back into t37s and i did that for uh two years down advance and at the time there was a program called ace it stood for accelerated co-pilot enrichment and when i was a, a tanker co-pilot i got to do this they had detachments at all the sac bases where they had tankers and bombers and they put the trainer jets there because it was a lot cheaper to operate a T-37 than a tanker or a bomber. And they let all the co-pilots fly those things so you get more experience and more air sense. And then they'd upgrade you to aircraft commander faster mm. and cheaper. So I went back to Loring as the detachment commander 
flying T-37s, and I did that for three years, and that was a real hoot. We got to fly all the different phases of flight. We did uh, you know, instrument training, aerobatic training, basic proficiency, some nav- low-level navigation stuff, and a little bit of formation. So it was a lot of fun flying that. So you did that for three years, and is that at what point transitioned to U-2s? Yeah. I, uh, How did that happen? I volunteered for it. I did not <laughs> want to go back to the tanker. <laughs> and I don't want to sound, well, I, I, I don't want to sound, I don't know, uh, ungrateful. It didn't challenge me. Right, right. <laughs> right. And that's not to say I was better than anybody else, but I didn't feel challenged doing it. The, the missions were kind of repetitive. Mm. Is, is that, that sound fair? Yeah, uh, that's fair. You know, like I said, flying the T-37, we go up and do aerobatics. We could do instrument training. We could do navigation. We could do low level. Bombers. Like a B-52, I actually tried to get into B-52s. At the time, they were doing sea interdiction. They had missions with harpoon missiles. They go out. They, they were supposed to go out and shoot uh, you know, Soviet aircraft oh. carriers. <laughs> I thought you were whale uh, hunting. You know, they did. They did bombing from high altitude. They did low low altitude bombing. They did. They they were air refueling receiver qualified, not just sitting there in the tanker. They actually the ones that that flew up and and got close. So. It was more varied flying experience. So I wanted to do something different. And a couple of buddies of mine got into the U-2. And when they knew I was coming up on assignment, they said, hey, you ought to look into this. So I volunteered for it. It's a competitive process. So they screen your records first. And if you pass that screen, and then they actually invite you out for an interview. And that's a two-week process. And the first week, you meet people. Uh, They put you in a pressure suit to see if you're claustrophobic. They give you another physical out there to make sure you don't have any underlying health conditions. And then if you pass that first week, the second week's flying. And they uh, take you up in a two-seat U-2, and they give you three sorties to see if you can figure out how to land the airplane. <laughs> so that's uh, so I did that in 1987, and they said, okay, come on out next year. And I said, okay, I can do that. So you flew the U-2 for 16 years? No, it was uh, – I showed up in very, very late, New Year's 89, right after Christmas of 88, and I left there in 99. Now, Mario, for folks who don't, again, they don't understand the Air Force, uh, give us a little background on the U-2 because, you know, you mentioned pressure suit. I don't know if people understand that. I have had friends because, again, I, I'm very proud of my brother and I talk about him and the, especially the U-2 thing's cool as crap to me to, to share. And I can't tell you over the years, this is going back since you did, started in 1989, People go, oh, you too. That's cool. They don't use that anymore. I'm not sure what you think. They yes, they do. Well, that was from like the 1950s. Yeah, I got. I guarantee yes, they're still is. using it. <laughs> so, and then you know, people know if they listen in history class to so you too, they'd be known for Gary Francis Powers getting shot down or falling down. But give people a little background on what the U2 is, the plane itself, and what it can do. All right. So 1955, the U.S. was concerned about the Soviet Union building ICBMs and, and nuclear weapons. So uh, there was this aircraft designer named Clarence Kelly Johnson. He worked for Lockheed. He designed the P-38, which was a... Uh, P-38? Was that the Mustang? No, no. The, the P-51 was the Mustang. Okay. The P-38 was called the Lightning. Okay. It had two engines. It was kind of odd for fighter aircraft, but they used it in the Pacific theater because it had a, a bigger range. It was a bigger fighter aircraft. The Japanese called it the Forktail Devil. It had twin vertical stabilizers. Okay, yeah. So this guy, Clarence Kelly Johnson, he, uh, he designed a bunch of different airplanes. The P-38, I think it was the uh, F-84, 
the government wanted a reconnaissance airplane and they had some very stringent criteria because the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, you know, technology was evolving and we were just getting surface to air missiles then. So the Air Force and the federal government wanted an airplane that could fly over missiles plus the long range. So they wanted something that could fly like 2,000 miles and go above 70,000 feet. And a couple of different companies started designing it and made some prototypes, but Clarence Kelly Johnson came up with the plans for the U-2, and it flew in uh, 1955, was the, the maiden voyage. The airplane has a bicycle landing gear configuration, so it's got a main gear and then a little tail wheel. Tail wheel's about nine inches in diameter. <laughs> The main gear is about two feet in diameter. It's actually, if you got uh, a truck with 33-inch tires on it, those are bigger than the aircraft, the, the U-2's landing gear. The whole idea was to keep weight down. So instead of having a tricycle configuration like most conventional aircraft have, they did this bicycle thing. They didn't use a big assembly on the rear end to keep the weight down. It doesn't have any hydraulics out in the wings. Uh, well, it does have a little because of the flaps, but... It, you know, it doesn't have landing gear, hydraulic actuators and all that weight out in the wings. All the fuels in the wings, it's got a little sump tank in the fuselage. That's how it feeds the engine directly. But the rest of it all flows out of the wings into the sump. The plane weighs about 17,000 pounds empty. And the first engine they put in it developed about 17,000 pounds of thrust, which means it could almost stand straight up and climb. <laughs> The first models had like 74-foot wingspans, and the ones we're flying now have 104-foot wingspans, 1,000 square feet of surface area on the wings. That's what generates all the lift so it can go up. And because the wings are so big, it looks like a glider, and it can glide quite a distance from mm -hmm. altitude. So the engine quits. It's not an immediate problem. Uh, eventually it will be an hour later, but you, you have time to think about it. An F-16 or an F-15, the engine, it, let's use an F-16 because it's a single engine. The engine quits on an F-16 and you have to land. It's going to take you, if you're right over the field, 10,000 feet or eight, eight to 10,000 feet, you got to just point the nose down and do like a big 360 and then you can land. The U-2, we do it from 1,500 feet. Wow. So that's the difference in the glide characteristics of the, the big wing out there. So the airplane was modified in the late 60s to uh, what they called the R model. In the 1980s, President Reagan started, well, the, the DOD and President Reagan, they, they built another one called the TR-1, which is the exact same thing as a U-2R, but the money came from someplace else. And that was to do tactical reconnaissance in Europe to... Uh, to keep an eye on the Soviet Union. Well, after the Soviet Union fell, they combined both programs, redesignated all the airplanes U-2Rs. In the mid-90s, they re-engined them and refurbished them. They got new sensors called U-2S models. They use this big turbofan engine that gets incredible fuel economy. The airplane, the old models, the R models, we could fly for 12 hours We'd start running out of gas, which is a long time for a single-seat airplane. The new ones, they could fly in excess of 16 hours. Jeez. And and they won't let anybody do it because it's dangerous to put, you know, a single person in an air, you know, sitting in a seat. You can't get up, can't use the latrine. Uh, 
and and if you want to talk about that, we can drift off later. But uh, <laughs> so the airplane's still in use today. They uh, every couple of years there's a rumor floating around. They pulled funding for it. Congress really loves it. The uh, national agencies, the CIA, everybody likes the intel it does. It's it's a visible program for our adversaries. You know, they, they, it, and it's been around a long time, and everybody knows it, it does a pretty nice job. It does multi-int collection, which means uh, int is intelligence. So it does imagery intelligence. Okay, it has a camera, uh, but we got to call it imagery intelligence because it doesn't always use film like in the old days. <laughs> and then it also does uh, signals intelligence, which is electronic stuff. So it can it can listen and it can see. And they can use the sensors to task stuff. So if they hear something, they can point the camera. If they see something, they can point the antenna. How does it get such good fuel economy? Is it like a is it like a hybrid or is it like well the uh yeah hybrid the, uh, <laughs> like a, like it's an Prius. electric it's a, got an electric engine it's very much no, like a no, Prius yeah. red these <laughs> Priuses in the air now part of it is it 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 doesn't have a lot of drag okay. But that that goes all the way back to 1955. The airplane's really clean and it's low weight, so it gets good. The airframe itself gets good fuel economy. The engine, uh, older jet engines, they just pour fuel in there and it burns and it uh, goes through the turbine section and the blades turn. They're little airfoils, just like the wings, except they're oriented differently. And you get you get the physics, you know, the right hand rule. So. If it's rotating clockwise, the, your thumb's pointing out the back end, and that gives you your thrust. When they upgraded it, they went to a turbofan engine, which has multiple compressor stages at the front of the engine. And they turn independently so that the turbine, there's there's less parasitic drag inside the engine. So that, that those fan blades compress the air going in, so you get a denser fuel-air mixture in the burner area. And it burns more cleanly, so you don't have to put as much gas in to get the same amount of thrust. And that's very simple and probably wrong, but that's what I remember. <laughs> but you didn't get paid to work on them. You just got paid to fly them. Well, no, I actually, you know, you want to talk about teamwork. I, I always found the mechanical part of it fascinating. And, you know, without those guys turning the wrenches out there, the airplane wasn't going to get in the air. Same thing without somebody delivering fuel, without the the life support people getting you your oxygen and making sure your pressure suit and everything fit right. I tried to learn as much about the airplane as possible because it helps you. If something breaks, you can talk more uh, cogently with the maintenance guys about it. And, and you can also, when you're flying, you kind of understand what's happening if something starts to break. But you want me to talk about the pressure suit though. All right. So the airplane flies at altitudes in excess of 70,000 feet. There's an interesting thing as you get higher, you know, on an airliner, you go up to 40,000 feet and they pressurize the cabin and they try to keep it between eight, 10,000 feet because above 10,000 feet, people start getting uh, oxygen or hypoxic symptoms. You know, you need a certain amount of oxygen in your lungs and in your systems. If they wanted to keep the U2 pressurized at 8,000 feet up that high, they'd have to add more weight. They'd have to run more fuel through it because they need to use the engine to pressurize it. There's there's a bleed air that comes off there. So the airplane flies around at like 20,000 feet. So you have to have the full pressure suit on, which looks exactly like the space shuttle suit that they used in the 80s. And uh, you're breathing 100% oxygen when you're in the suit. And the suit's going to protect you if the cabin depressurizes 
because above 63,000 feet, your blood will boil, right? And what that means is all the diffused gas in your body uh, comes out of solution at 63,000 feet because there's not enough atmospheric pressure keeping it in solution. So the suit is designed to keep you below that threshold so that if the there is a decompression at altitude, you don't blow up inside your suit. It doesn't look like, a, a, what was that, Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> is that like the opposite of the bends, like when you go out too far underwater? No, it's related. Oh, okay. The, the, the bends is bubbles coming out. And when we go up, that can still happen. Even though you're in the suit, your blood's not boiling. It's not a, 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 a catastrophic event. But uh, guys get the bends a lot flying the U-2 because you're sitting up there for eight or nine hours at that high cabin altitude. And most of the times you get pain in your knees, your elbows and stuff. But there, there can be serious ramifications for it. So what we used to do prior to takeoff and if you watch the John London thing, we, we get suited up and we have to be breathing 100% oxygen one hour prior to takeoff. And every hour you're on 100% oxygen, you eliminate 50% of the nitrogen in your system. So if we were going to take off at 11 o'clock local time, we'd get on oxygen at, uh, at 10 o'clock local time. To take off at 11, you're going to get above 63,000 feet about noon. So in theory, you've gotten rid of 75% of the nitrogen in your system. And, and today, they've even got guys, uh, it's, the, the science behind this evolving, they've got guys riding exercise bikes while they're in the in pressure suit, suit before they get in, before they get into the airplane because it eliminates even more the nitrogen and carbon dioxide. They're breathing 100% oxygen riding the exercise bike. So they're doing a lot of neat things that way to, to try to eliminate the danger to the pilot. But yeah, it's when, when you climb in an airplane, it's the same thing as if you've been diving at 60 feet and you come up. All the nitrogen gets compressed when you're down diving. And as you you know come up, you got to make a decompression stop. Like say, say you go down to 90 feet, you got to come up to 60 and stay there for a couple of minutes and breathe. And then you come up to 30 and stay there and then you come up to 15. You don't do that in this. You want to you want to get up to altitude and get on your your way as soon as possible. So we we pre-breathe the oxygen beforehand. Thanks so much for listening. Join us next week as we continue this discussion with Colonel Mario Buda, and we talk about seizing opportunity, saying yes and figuring it out afterward, and briefly introducing Mario's TV show experience with Joan London. This podcast is recorded and produced by me, Brett Hammond, at www.bhammond.com.